0: Hello listeners and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. Today we have a special guest, as we often do, who works on something that I find very interesting. In the years that I've worked as a consultant, I've always found it interesting that different teams learn in different ways. And it seems to have something to do with whether the team is hierarchical, whether the team represents a flat network, whether everyone in the team is willing to say they don't know, whether they're supportive of each other, there's all these interesting factors that determine how well people learn as a group. And I've only ever learnt this stuff anecdotally, which is fun, but now we have a guest who is actually about to submit her PhD on team learning environments. So today, we're gonna fill in all the gaps of the things I don't know about something really interesting.
1: The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear. There's no I in team, but there isn't Tim. My name's Tim Wiffen. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. We're also joined with a special guest. Christina Stoddard. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you. Fun to be here.
1: Well, you're hoping it's going
0: to be fun. <laughs> We're knowing it's going to be fun. Um, so we know and you're hoping. Yeah. And at the end, you get asked the question again. So did you have fun? Cool. Where well, it's totally legit to say no. Yeah. I want to have a tantrum. I want to have a cry. And I want a glass of red wine. Oh, that's totally legit. Cool. So team learning environments. Yeah. Did it cause you to drink large amounts of red wine?
2: Oh, yes.
0: <laughs> that's a perfect start.
2: For all sorts of reasons. Absolutely.
0: So, logical place to start, what got you interested in the idea of team learning?
2: Uh, Okay, that's a very good question. (laughs)
0: That's why they pay me the no money to sit here and host.
2: (laughs) Okay, I think I became interested in team learning for several different reasons, partly personal, partly professional, like as in study, and partly practical experience from my work. So, at... The time so way back when my PhD first started
0: when you uh, was a little graduate. I was
2: a little graduate, and we should
0: put this in context. Now you are a PhD candidate in the School of Psychology at the University of Adelaide. Yes, so you hang up with really capable grown-ups.
2: I do. I Mm. I, I'd like to. Yes, I'd I'd hope to think I am one, but you know, yeah. But that's
0: what happens when you get your PhD. (laughs) Then you've got your proof of being a really capable (gasps) grown-up.
2: Evidence, hard evidence, love evidence. Yeah. So, um, okay. So, get back to so the how I started to to be interested in this topic was partly professional. At the time when I started the PhD, I was working at the Australian Defence Science and Technology Organisation. We were very much interested in understanding how the army uh, learnt as an organisation, and at that sort of middle level, at the team level. And as an individual. So we were very interested in the whole thing, which, you know, that was part of my work. It was my job. However, as time went on and from my own experience, not I was never in the army, but within the um, just a bureaucracy, you could see that there was this sort of like um, to two, the tension, I think, between. Like the uh, the hierarchy, sort of what my boss said. How I, um, you know, how do people, how do people, you know, express their, you know, learning their mistakes, the failures or the stuff ups that happen, which are all a critical part of learning, together with just the need for, you know. Um, innovation and adaptation and all of those good things. So I think in essence it was that real almost contradiction between what people said and what people actually did. So you would hear, oh yes, we want your ideas and we would want mm. to be innovative. And you go, like, Great, that's fabulous. But at the same time, they didn't actually want you to make a mistake. They didn't actually want you to waste effort. No, or you could do something
0: brave and amazing as long as you take no risk, risk and don't fail. Exactly.
2: And don't fail and make it work every time, first time.
0: So I love going to yes. places and going, <laughs> hi how about we do a safe-to-fail exercise?
2: And they all go, ooh.
0: And then you hear the deep <laughs> breath and then the silence <laughs> exactly. where even the hearts have temporarily stopped. Is, yes. Going, what are you going to do to us? Exactly. Well, we're like, going to what? try a safe-to-fail exercise, which means it is safe to fail.
2: It's like, hang on, hang on. Yes, it doesn't compute. It's
0: not like, And then you have uh, 10 minutes of people kind of freaking out quietly. Yeah. Then you explain it again and they go, yep, get it, nah.
2: Yeah, nah, ain't happening. Or, or, or... Because if
0: we do it once, we have to be able to do it again. And they're like, "Nah."
2: Yeah. Or the other thing that I've experienced, they're like, yeah, that's a really good idea for somewhere else over there, but not here. Mm, Here's Because
0: we're high reliability. Yeah, exactly.
2: Oh. We've got to be right every time. It's like, yeah. But those guys over there, wherever it is, unspecified, they're, they're different. They can take risks. They're this, yeah, mythical peeps. Yeah, exactly. Nirvana over there. That, <laughs> it's like, not here. Um, yeah.
0: And when you start that kind of reflection of going, they're asking me to study this thing in this group of people. And I'm now starting to apply the same logic to the people Mm -hmm. around me. Mm -hmm. And when my partner gets home, I'm starting to apply this logic to what (laughs) their day has been like. And you start realizing that once you start seeing everything through the lens of most people, even if they wanted to learn on their own, you can't do that at work. Mm -hmm. Because at work, it's always going to be in the context of the team How they accept new things, how they engage with the new, Mm -hmm. do they trust one person to get something new and if so, does it have to be someone senior? Yes. How as a junior person can you be allowed to learn something new? Normally you can't Mm -hmm. because the bosses don't understand it, so the bosses won't give you enough leeway to apply new knowledge. So you start seeing all these problems.
2: Yep, and that is exactly the question that I was asking, well myself particularly, and then eventually my data.
0: Yeah, and yeah. it's probably good you had a lockdown set of data because I know when I started talking to people about what I'd seen in other organizations, how some teams learned well and how you know, some teams learned really poorly, once again, people's stress starts going up. You know, Are you going to turn from reflecting on a previous experience to analyzing this one, gulp? Yes. So you're seen as potentially being very destabilizing yep. in the new environment. So the fact that you could at least say, here is the historical data set. Yep. Absolutely. I am going to work with my historical data set. Yep. This project will not transcend that means people can be interested in what can be learned because we're poking the finger at someone else.
2: Yep. Yes. Past history.
0: <laughs> yeah. The power of not in my backyard. Yes. And yeah, NIMBYs. Yes. Yeah. So it's the perfect project for a NIMBY.
2: Yes, absolutely. And so, yeah, so I had the the data that I'd collected previously and we I was looking at, um, so essentially what I did after, like so one of the things I was really curious about was as part of our bigger research project, we had the the qualitative, so the, we were doing focus studies and actually talking to people about their experience, so military teams about their experiences on operations and how they learned and all the, exactly as you were saying, they were talking about how actually funnily enough their best learning examples were from when they were allowed to be on operations. Yep. So when they had the, they were given the flexibility and the autonomy to do their job Which meant also trying new things and like improvising, discovering if it worked, if it didn't, and so they saw the learning that they were able to do on operations, on deployment. It's very, very different from what they were or were not allowed to do in barracks. In barracks, they were it was the classic, yeah, big army problem. Do
0: what I say, exactly. Don't take risks. And for goodness sake, don't fail.
2: Exactly. Whereas in operations on deployment, far more ability to fail because they had to be out there, you know, their classic, they were giving enough autonomy to, um, you know, solve the problem that was presented to them. There was nobody sitting over their, you know, shoulder going, here you go. No, you can't do that. You can do that. It's like you go and do it. You are in charge of yourself. And you
0: can see the consequences of this, Mm -hmm. that people in big army who are capable and willing, desperately want to get to Special Operations Command to have more autonomy some of the time, rather than having to wait for deployments. And everyone who's had autonomy during deployment, the more autonomy they've had during deployment, the greater the chance of coming back to barracks means they leave at the end of their next contract. So you lose all that talent because they go, I cannot come back to being micromanaged and working in a no risk, not allowed to Mm -hmm. fail environment.
2: And that was actually so. That was actually the the key of my analysis. And what what I found was that um, I was doing statistical modeling at the team level. So we were able to aggregate the, each individual into their teams because, of course, we knew who they were. And then what I found was exactly this pattern: that the more deployments the team went on, combined with a higher hierarchy. Actually led to improved team learning. However, it wasn't the more deployments led to team learning directly. It was actually so. It was actually deployment with actually interestingly enough a broader hierarchy of people, so a wider range of ranks and the team that increase interestingly enough increased the sense of um, psychological. Equality or egalitarianism, and then led to team learning. So there was this very nuanced relationship between deployment and team learning.
0: That it depended on the nature of the team. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah.
2: and particularly then also the leadership within the team. So
0: my hypothesis there would be that if the boss is willing to learn and go, I trust you, Mm -hmm. then the next person down goes I want you to get on with it and I trust you and you normalize giving people autonomy and that just becomes what that unit does yes and it's easier to legitimize in the field
2: yes and that's exactly what what I found is that the so we actually measured um, so I actually measured a different leadership style so we looked at what I called lead, learning 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 oriented leadership which is exactly you know do you get coach um, is your you know, is your supervisor open to new ideas? Can they share information quickly and easily? So I was looking at very very specific behaviours from the person supervisor, and and also at the same time we were also looking at what the you know the classic transformational leadership and transactional. So I grouped up all the all these up together. Yeah, the
0: conventional the models conventional from the ones. corporate world. Exactly. And transactional is a disaster everywhere.
2: Uh, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it won't be a surprise. The more transactional, the less the team learning. Like that was a mm. direct relationship. I could significantly say absolutely. Transactional doesn't do well if actually what you want is team learning.
0: No, so the idea that you can use extrinsic motivation of cash and other stuff in a transactional environment works for so few people mm. where the combination of, you're not my leader, you're just making a deal with me so I earn more money. Yeah. Now some people can go, well, if, as long as I get the more money I can deal with this, but they're actually such a tiny minority of people who can feel positive about that environment.
2: Absolutely. There's so much evidence to support that, that really it is the, you know, what drives us as people is not the amount of money that we make. Almost always, it's the you know the team environment, the norms, you know what's expected of you, how you can um, behave, how what you know that the, all the other deeply human things that make us human. Mm. You know, it's not generally the money. The money's nice, like the States, mm. I'm never. Gonna we all say need no. some money, exactly, but we, but we want a no. really
0: good culture. Exactly. So as we've talked about over lunch before, the, you know the idea of strategic culture. If you yep. understand the organizational culture, you can pretty much predict how people are going to behave.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. And it shows that that's what, you know, one of the reasons why I ended up doing the study that I did was I really wanted to just exactly get at that question and show how important it is and how much, like, one, it can actually be quantified. You can actually measure it, which is cool.
0: Yeah. And that's sort of, again, from the time Jack <laughs> Snyder mean, started on strategic culture in the 70s, yeah, yeah. the problem has always been it's a qualitative analysis. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And this is where what you've done is so important mm. because. I couldn't do the statistical work. It, you know, I would end up sort of taking a a toothpick to the you know the inside of my thumb or something <laughs> and digging a hole, going, huh? you know, do the stats. So you have to stab yourself again. I'd go, I'll stab myself.
2: So I was doing that too. Sometimes I have to say. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but the whole point is, at least you knew how to do the statistical thing.
2: I, I figured it out. Actually, funnily enough, and just by the by, I realised that there wasn't. Okay. In Australia, there wasn't this the expertise. So no almost, one knew how to model it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Most of the techniques, almost all of the techniques that I'm I'm doing and I did, were were emerging from America, particularly yeah. America, um, in this last five, ten. Again, years. the
0: amount of data they have means if you've got oh, some way of tapping in, you don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. Exactly. But if you can't find a way to tap in, and that's the thing, Ooh. they did so much research so fast. Mm-hmm. on their experience in Afghanistan and Iraq.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: DSTO was probably able to get you access to stuff, I would imagine, that you know, now might be out in public or in 10 years' time will be. But at that time you had to go to the right conference mm. or meet the right embedded person <laughs> yes. who was here for a year yeah. to know that someone was actually already doing the second project there yeah. while you were being asked to do the first one here.
2: Yeah, yeah. And although yes and funnily enough, no, because – The techniques that they're using, so these multi-level modelling, which is really cool, were being emerged and actually funnily enough a lot of it was from the American Army because you're Mm. right, they have so much data, it's just insane. Mm. But interestingly enough, um, what we, like what the Australian Army or Australian DSTO had is that (laughs) because we've got one man and a dog to do the job that, you know... a building of like hundreds of people in America has what we what we were able to do was bring together by necessity um, the sociological uh, sociological basis of um, like armies like military sociology. Together with social psychology, which is what because there was only two home. of you, yeah, so they was exactly. wake
0: So again, this was essentially the human factors team, yeah. where they couldn't come up with a better word, and they just said you're the human factors. Oh,
2: where <laughs> where the organizational research? Oh, what were we? Organizational analysts, but yeah, exactly. So
0: you sat beside the human factors yeah, people, the ones they did. couldn't explain. It did. It human did. factors, like, yeah, it's a factor about a human.
2: Exactly, yeah. it's a factor about a human. <laughs> Bless them, um, ergonomics, and you know all of that really cool importance. Yeah,
0: how body armor can actually fit so you can run exactly, it's kind of and you don't
2: have to get killed. So that's that's big
0: very important. point number two.
2: <laughs> exactly, but yeah, absolutely. Is literally myself and my colleague um, Stephen Talbot, he's still there. Um, Just yeah. sat in a box. Yeah, yeah, sat in a room. We sat next to it and and sat there and like,
0: what do we want to do?
2: D- yeah, d- and develop these ideas. So what happened was that we we developed our concept and constructs because we had to, literally together. And then he presented this work. He went over to the States and presented it back, well, not back to, he presented it to the States and they loved it. They honestly, they thought it was really, really good They because they did not do that because they didn't have to because their psychology people sat in a big yep. group. you know, in a,
0: Their sociologists sat in a group. Their organisational culture people sat in a group. Their systems thinking people yep. sat, sat in a in group. group and they had four different reports Exactly, and there would have been some crazy intern who one summer went, hey, can I take the four reports on the same topic and try and bring them together? Yep. Yep. And the answer would have been no.
2: No, no they're too <laughs> different. You can't do it. Exactly. Whereas so. here
0: it would have been... Hey, summer intern, go help the two people.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like, oh, okay, then. <laughs> so yeah, we literally sat there and, and and sort of build the ideas, drawing on you know standard standard stuff, but uh, so sociology and sort of social psychology to build a, uh, an approach that the US Army went, hey, we want some of that. That's brilliant. So and that's cool.
0: kind of the ultimate thing you need when you're doing it from Australia oh, yeah. is you can work in an area. But as I said in the intro, I understand all this stuff anecdotally from years of training teams, mm-hmm. but would never know where qualitatively to start. How did you guys get to the point where you trusted the model you were building? Were you able to sort of get the Americans with more experience to sort of do some verification testing on the model? Or did you also have to develop all your own verification testing?
2: Uh, Essentially, we did it ourselves, as you said. Um, Huge job. Because, uh, well, you know, there's a very... <laughs> part of the developing the statistical models was to ensure the fit and there's a very specific set of criteria mm. that drove me bananas as I was developing the models to make sure they fitted properly. Mm. Um, and the, the criteria that are used to evaluate fit a standard sort of psych from, you know, that's out there in academia... So I w- so quantitatively, I had to do that to develop and make sure that they fit.
0: And that's a wonderful thing. Even though you were doing it in a small group, mm. you could do it in relation to this deeper psychological academic standard yes. and go, well, it's met the best practice standard we have Absolutely. for developing a model. Yes, uh, yes. It, there isn't a better standard. This is a different area than normally is researched. But the whole point of that standard is it could be applied to different areas again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we could go and survey, you know, a, a sort of cruise ship's galley full of chefs. Yep.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And come up with a model for them using the same qualitative tests.
2: Yep, absolutely. Yeah, which okay. is
0: the really important thing.
2: Yep. The same. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, that so the statistical testing was there, and also mm. at the same time we were looking at the. Did the concepts make sense to the soldiers on the ground? Like in our in our in the focus groups, were we actually um, making sense? So when you told the story about what, like when I sort of sat there and said, "This is what I'm thinking. This is what I am seeing from the numbers," did does people, it
0: align with experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: And they would be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's right." But you go, like, "Cool." You know, or they look at you and go, (laughs) "Not quite, (laughs) not quite." My experience. Mm. So you have to
0: balance up the statistical veracity with also the qualitative thing that I would understand of getting people to tell the story, and then Um, comparing the stories they tell. Yeah,
2: because ultimately, that was what I was. I think uh, what I've captured, and was certainly trying to capture, trying to capture was was the modelling, the were the numbers telling the right story.
0: Mm, Because what you've come up with is a very nuanced thing and that is there is no problem with hierarchy. It can actually be an advantage Yes, with the hypothesis being that in a hierarchy if everyone at every level has to give the people below just a bit more autonomy and that becomes the norm that trust and growing because of autonomy become the norm, well, that's a really positive environment because what that means is the historical model of one boss – then four to eight people below them, then four to eight people below each one of the people in that team, four to eight in every team below that huge pyramid structure that was normal in the military mm. and in the industrial world mm. for over a century. <laughs> it still means that that model, yes, it's lost its it's, it's lost its salience as being the be-all and end-all. People have too much information now to just sit quietly at the bottom of that structure. Yeah, They're too able to equip themselves with new knowledge. But there are still benefits in having a system that says, you know, the people above me know what I do, but they have to worry about what the people above them need from them. Yeah. So everyone has to focus on their chunk. I suppose yeah. Yeah, that, the, the essence is what you found is that micromanagement wrecks performance. Uh, That's the essence, so isn't it? It
2: is,
1: is it? it is. Isn't that interesting though? Would, is it fair to say, and this is, will be attested whether I followed uh-huh. that, in some ways, the hierarchy works because the psychology of having someone above you trust you and treat you like an equal, actually... Or well,
0: not an equal. Remember, we're talking a military contracts. <laughs> they trust you. Typically. Equitable? <laughs> I, psycholo-
2: I, I would differentiate between uh, formal authority, like formal, yeah. okay. formal power structure, and right. psychologically feeling like... Yeah. you can be an equal. If you're treated like a person, right.
1: yeah. that's the kind of equality that, yeah. in, that matters in this world. That's yeah. so interesting because it really all that says is that the expectation that you weren't going to be treated like a human <laughs> is, is really what. But that's what is, people is like S- Stan McChrystal and
0: that have been criticising, right. why the hierarchical model yeah. failed for special forces in Iraq. Right. Yeah. Because it wasn't you aren't a person, you are my subordinate.
2: Yeah. And, right.
0: and I am more alpha than you. yeah,. Right. and that caused monumental problems.
2: And I have to say what what I found in when I was travelling through the fascinating research of basically, when there is a power difference, say, I know you're more powerful for whatever reason, and there's multiple forms of power, is that at a very, very basic, almost physiological cognitive level, mm. We are like as human beings. We are affected by power difference. Right. We don't even know, like how much that affects
0: us. It's just us. always on.
2: It is always on. We are yeah. so like we are, human beings are so programmed to pay attention to power difference. Mm. So
1: the dominance hierarchy exactly, yeah,
2: yeah. but all sorts of power differences. So yeah. we are constantly aware at some unconscious level. Uh, that this makes a difference. So, you know, when you're talking to a high, what you see as a high power person, there's a bunch of behaviours that we do. You know, we will typically, people will typically, you know, stop voicing their opinions. You'll shift how you say it. You'll soften your opinion. Um, you know, yeah. And conversely, if you're the high power and you see a, you know, a subordinate, it's almost induces. Uh, there, there's some fascinating social psych experiments about this. It almost induces like a, a narcissism. So if, oh. if even the perception of power. So not even the real power. Mm-hmm. So just you, perception. Just the perception will almost yeah. induce like I don't really give a rat's about anybody else, particularly not my subordinates, because I'm important. Wow. And and that is the bait. So that is almost like our some. Sub- that is the social position. norm. Yeah, that's a social. That's almost yeah. our default. So that's why you actually have to actively manage to counter all of those yeah, almost
0: you have to rehumanize yeah, everyone yeah, see exactly. it's a strange thing about being blind my feeling is that a lot of the triggers for identifying power are visual
2: yes uh, yeah yes, my feeling yes, is absolutely. that a lot
0: of it is body language yeah <laughs> and what clothes people are wearing and yes. where they sit in the room those yep. kind of things did they get the biggest best chair yep. so i find that it's not that i misread these things it's i don't care <laughs> And how? I behave like I don't care, and which, with some people in power, gets me in a world of trouble.
2: I was about to say, how do you find it? Do you find you get different reactions? Oh, I do.
0: I get very stroppy, powerful people, huh? Because I'm not showing due deference. Yes. Because yes. you know the fact that their suit is way nicer and their big chair is way bigger. Yep. And that they've got like you know the nice sort of teacups while the rest of us have got the paper cups. <laughs> yeah. All that kind of crap. Yep. Is just crap to me. Yeah. Like I went in, sat down this is the interesting person, this is the boring person. Well, the boring person sitting at the end of the table with the big chair, the big suit, the big coffee cup, <laughs> uh, the assistant beside them passing them things, and I've actually spent the entire meeting focusing on someone halfway down the table who, who was really interesting.
2: Mm. Now, and then- that
0: was the weakest person power-wise at the table, but the one whose ideas could transform what was happening at the table. Mm. So I've responded intellectually
2: mm.
0: and will normally pay the price at a later date.
2: Damn. <laughs> 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 Uh, that, but yeah, yeah and, and that's exactly that, that, that um, if the you know, power person is used to having deference mm. and used to, that's in their heads what they expected. Mm. And if you go counter that, it's like, oh, whoa. yeah, mm. so it's, it's, a, it's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Mm. And
0: that's then there are the other situations yep. where the very powerful person realizes I'm not impressed. And starts paying attention to who I'm paying attention to and starts reassessing their people differently.
2: That's really interesting. Because
0: they've gone, David is immediately responding to what people say and how they say it and is interacting with people on the basis they're interesting to interact with, is mm. ignoring the pre existing power structure in the room. And it- it's particularly interesting for me when it's an environment, in a military environment, where in the room there can be everything from colonels down to corporals. Because I just talk to the people that are most interesting. I spend the most time training the people who are most open to learn. Mm. So if you are not open to learn and you don't engage well, I'll just ignore you. It's not personal. <laughs> I'm I'm too busy interacting with people who want to engage and want to learn. Yeah. So that's who gets the time.
2: Yeah, I was just thinking about the bosses who actually pay attention and reevaluate and go, uh ah. Hang on a minute! What have I missed? The funniest thing Kudos about it, them, it, it
0: often is that you know at the start of the day it's been some poor lieutenant or captain who has to guide me from here to there and mm. be my chaperone, but suddenly at lunch it's a colonel who wants to walk me to lunch. <laughs> I'm like, okay, someone's worked out yeah. that something interesting is happening here today, and it's something that you know a, a few of my former students who are now you know defence officers mm. in various services have all said the same thing. You get to the end of your officer training. You go out to your regimental training. You've been used to being equal with every cadet in the room and being able to work fairly collaboratively. Mm. But suddenly you get dumped in more formal training where there's people of different ranks and there's no separate gear for training anymore. You're still in the gear of that's a boss and we're lower than them. We might be able to work together as the juniors in the room, but if the boss directs us differently or to do something specific, that's the end of us autonomously working on how we think mm. this works.
2: Absolutely. And
0: they've all said the same thing to me, that mm. in the main their regimental training between finishing becoming officers and selling into their first junior command is a miserable experience.
2: Because of that.
0: Because of structure. The, they can't learn properly anymore mm. because there is no proper learning environment. There is a, you know, we've gone back into hierarchy for the sake of hierarchy.
2: Yeah, because it's safer. Yep. <laughs> Less risk.
0: Yeah. And so suddenly all these people who have proven themselves to be excellent learners mm. to get there can't be excellent learners anymore and start going, what is this organization I've become part of?
2: Yeah. And yes. And it's, the, the, and it's it would only be if that boss, unusually enough or amazingly enough, actually took the time to invite the subordinates' viewpoints. Yep. Um it like demonstrated through their own actions to say, here's oops, you know, here's why here's a mistake yep. that I made. This is what I've learned from it. I'm inviting everybody else to yep. join us, join me. This is, you know, this is how we're gonna do it. So I actually models it.
0: Yep. And that's what I've literally mm. said to colonels who walk me to lunch. Yeah. We need an explicit statement. This is learning time. Yeah. David's weird and we're all learning from David. (laughs) So let's just all admit that we're all learning and that it's okay to get things wrong because this is stretching our brains. Yeah. And we might be able to make use of this tomorrow, but today it's about stretching our brains. So we don't stretch our brains. How will we find out what David can teach us? Absolutely. But I've had to teach people who trust me to make it explicit.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: And if they can make it explicit, the difference is just immense. Ooh. So I remember at one point having a young guy who was just you know at the beginning of the reinforcement cycle. So got through selection, wasn't Ooh. through reinforcement yet, who was driving me around for the day and looking after me. He said, Oh, can I come to training tomorrow, David? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned you can go talk to your boss. So he goes to talk to his boss and on the day he was there, he was by far the most junior person in the room. Now that was automatically a problem at the beginning, because in the room were all these people who normally yeah, you know, would either be teaching him or would be totally ignoring him,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and he had to find which group to go and work with for the day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, because you know a very senior person helped set the turn, you know, tone. This is a learning environment. This very, very little private spent the day working with the captains.
2: Actually, that yeah, and that overcoming rank well.
0: In a very specific way. Yes, you have yeah. to state it explicitly. Yes. This is a learning environment. And, okay, listeners, we're talking in military terms here. This mm. is exactly the same in the corporate world. Mm-hmm. Oh, the yeah. shininess of the suit is yeah. no different to what's on people's shoulders.
2: Yeah, the seniority of the lecturer.
0: Yep. It does not matter where. You need to make an explicit statement mm. about this is a learning environment. And for the sake of the learning environment, we need to suspend some of the normal ways we interact if we are all going to benefit. Mm -hmm. Because it has to be safe to fail for everybody in a learning environment so that we don't fail when it matters. Mm. So again, I, I started with it has to be a learning environment. And over time, I moved from them having to say this is a safe to fail environment and then repeating that at least three times in the first two hours <laughs> until it finally got through, because yeah. it's such an unknown concept. Yeah. And this is not, once again, not just in a military context, but in any corporate context. Safe to fail is basically unheard of.
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd build on that too, because thinking about um, not only, you know, saying it obviously, but showing it, demonstrating it, giving you an example when, yes, here's a failure, this is when it worked. Well, as in this is what I learned from the failure. Mm. Um, it ties up really, for the corporate folks, um, ties up really, really well with um, agile project management. There's a world of, yes. um, you know, fail faster. There's a whole lot of… Yeah, um, fail fast and early. Exactly, fail yeah. fast and early. Yeah. And also the use of like retrospectives as a mechanism to learn, to explicitly learn and go, okay, this is what we've learned from this particular cycle. What are we going to change? Mm. What are we going to do differently? And I know, I think what's really useful is if you make it just part of the process, standard operating procedures. So this is not an individual thing. If you take sort of almost the individuals out, so, every, you know, that, yep. although the bosses have to, set, leaders have to set it up. Yeah. It's like how do you make it a part of the standard operating pr- process yeah. of this team? Whereas so. the
0: retrospective thing works so well in theory in agile, yeah. But again, for uh, you know, for a crap team that can't get over its hierarchy <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's bad high-correct. So this is why again I would prefer to teach people about pre-mortems,
2: ah.
0: and to go okay, we're about to go do this thing. This is the learning phase. This yeah. is the safe to fail phase. Yep. Let's pre-mortem the shit out of this plant. Actually, let's work out before we even start all the ways it's going to fail. Yeah. You know, and again, you start with exactly what Gary Klein said about pre mortems. Yep. Our plan has failed. We have failed to deliver. We have failed to achieve the objective. Mm-hmm. Now, let's list all the reasons. Now, let's improve the plan this side. So when you get to the post-mortem after... Mm-hmm. You've taken personality out because mm. you've normalised the pre-mortem exactly. on the on the first, you know, pre-project. Yeah. So the post-mortem, they can go back to an earlier mindset yep. that is not about blame. It's about we failed.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's about um, I, I look at it in terms of sort of process. Mm. What could we? I have done better. You done mm. better. Where in this process? Because mm. inevitably, like you know, mistakes or failure are usually a conglomeration of multiple things Well, they're normally cascades. Exactly.
0: If you can't get everyone to speak honestly, you won't find the cascade. And this thing of building the process in of leaving the people's experience in, Mm. but taking blame and hierarchy Mm. out as much as possible. So you have to turn this into a process. Otherwise, most hierarchies can't accept it. They can't accept something that's fluffy. You have to be able to give them the multi-step process yep. so they can go, we're a hierarchy and we use this process because yep. it delivers. And, and they, if you can do that, they'll, it's amazing how brave people will be mm-hmm. when they just apply a process before the stressor that they can repeat something similar after the stressor. Yep. So they trust it already.
2: Yeah. So And yeah, once it's worked a few times, it's like, oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Excellent.
0: And getting people to change that gear Mm. is just so important. And that's the thing. What it seems your work has identified is these groups did much better. Yes. And so often what we've seen in the post-9-11 military world is we look at all the different ways people get broken and Mm. the ways units underperform. Yep. Whereas you've done that wonderful thing of gone, no, we can see exactly which teams did well. Mm -hmm. And because we can quantify it, now, we can do the qualitative analysis and go, it's supported by you know quantitative evidence. Yep. So if we find out why this works, we can make it repli- replicable. Mm-hmm. And that's always been my problem with the anecdotal thing, is I just go, well, okay, I need them to say, this is a learning environment. I need them to say, this is safe to fail. I need them to say, we need to surrender some of the normie hierarchical stuff, so we will take a few more risks in training. Yep. It's great to do that, but I still only do it from job to job. And I would never be able to prove it to anyone who hasn't already started to trust me. And Mm. it's not that I can prove it to them. They've just started to trust me, Mm. which is an entirely different thing. Whereas your PhD will be the beginning of having a proof for someone like me to be able to go out and go, look, here, proof. Better learning environments from teams who put their hierarchies together well and teams that don't. What's the difference? Level to which autonomy is allowed Mm. and people are seen as humans not as subordinates,
2: yeah,
0: yeah, or, or even your boss. Your boss might be amazing, and you don't want to let your boss let your boss down. But your boss is still a person. So in the case of you know, say so somewhere like Two Commando, where you've got mm. captains walking around who've got the Medal of Gallantry and stuff, yes, like you don't want to let mm. a boss like that down in a military right. context. But that boss is still a human, mm. and if a model can say that that recognition that we've all got the capacity to be good problem solvers. We've all got the capacity to be good learners, but we need hierarchy to manage the most difficult days of our life. Yep. That's a good and sophisticated model.
2: Yep, that's pretty much what, yes.
0: (laughs) And then for adaptable to most other situations.
2: Yes, yeah. Because like hierarchy in and of, and that again was one of my interesting things, is hierarchy in and of itself isn't bad. It's not this unmitigated evil. It is just, What kind
0: of hierarchy? Exactly. And for what reasons?
2: Yes, exactly. When? When is it good? When is it bad? That was what I was interested in. It's not just it's all bad. It's like because, you know, life is complex and, you know, the army in its wisdom... You know, has been around for hundreds of years. It does right? what it does exactly. to get jobs done on the yes. worst
0: days of people's lives. Exactly, and it works on those days, which is why it doesn't reform quickly, mm-hmm. or it will stop doing what it needs to do on the worst days of people's lives. Exactly. Like I would love to see the kind of research you've done done on a naval unit, yeah, where you've got a higher level of collectivity, but also people have to live, you know, teeth, you know, cheek and yes. jaw so close. So at some level, they're more collective, Mm -hmm. but they're also more aware that everyone's a person
2: because they're crammed
0: in the machine. You know The humans fit around the machine Mm
2: -hmm.
0: on a naval vessel, which would be a really different environment to assess this stuff in.
2: It would. It would be really cool. I'd love to do that.
0: (laughs) And to then take this sort of analysis to a network task force. Yes. So where Stan McChrystal said, right, I want task forces... Your job is to get this target right. You lot are from six different units. Here's Mm. some Air Force people. Here's some Navy people. Here's some CIA. Here's some FBI. Here's some people from state. Off you go. Be a task force. Mm. Put them in a box, rattle them up and see what you get. Now to do this kind of assessment of how they learn Mm. and how they learn to be a task force, that would be fascinating.
2: There's some really cool evidence. I was looking at um, uh, joint joint task forces, sort of like that. Yeah. From NATO, I think the work was coming out of NATO, Yeah. and they were looking at under under times of stress when you know similar hierarchical teams, what were the what were the communication st- styles that helped the uh, joint hierarchical teams succeed or not or you know perform well, and what they f- what they were finding was actually it was when. Oh, um, Deeply uh, sense-making. So they were using the idea of, you know, is it just here's a bit of information for you, here's like a fact? Or was it like here's the actual whole story and the reason for the fact? Surprise, surprise. It was actually the teams that generally as a Did standard, sense-making yeah, as did a group. Sen- yes, sense-making as a group. It didn't matter
0: if they were hierarchical. Yeah, they exactly. did the sense-making together. They did together. the
2: sense-making together. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was not just communication was happening. It was actually the quality of the, and the richness yep. of the communication, because of course, when you think about it, it, makes sense. When you go, okay, I understand the fact, but I also understand the context and what you're thinking, and that matches what I'm thinking. And yeah. okay, I, you know, I can see a way forward. Particularly when you've got across, you know, possibly you know, national cultural barriers yep. and agency um, barriers yeah, and they, all the yep, other all things, all of them, possibly yep. you know, language and everything else. So, yes, it was that um, richness of communication that was found to drive successful hierarchical teams in complex or extreme environments. And
0: so, mm. to go back to Stan McChrystal, because his sort of basic statement when he took over in Baghdad mm. to his mixed agency task force was fantastic. It was just, if what you need to do to get your job done, you believe it's moral and legal, get on with it.
2: Oh, that's empowering. If you're
0: not <laughs> sure, come see me like, straight away. Yeah. But I trust you to get on with it.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's a good thing.
0: So what a place to start. Yeah. We're saying as long as you think that what you're doing is moral and legal and Ooh. we'll get the job done, if you've got the resources you need and you'll be of the task force, you've got everything you need, get on with it. hmm like all I need to know is, you know, do you need anything more? How does it fit in our broad plan? Mm. And well, once you've done your bit, what do we do with it?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I would almost expect that in the period that these NATO documents would have been coming out,
2: mm.
0: yeah, you know, the majority of these NATO officers at some point would have been in NATO command in Kabul with people like McChrystal, who were already Six or eight years into this process, mm. or six years in at the time of the Rolling Stone article. Mm. So, in a sense, he bought this thing quite well formed with his inner circle of staff, guys like Chris Fussell. And then that must have got spread mm. back to all these people in NATO who went home and went Bla, blah, 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 and right. looked all excited. And everyone at home looked and went,
2: No. Yeah, it's never going to work But the
0: minute they stuck the task forces together, who would have been keen to be on a task force like that? Yeah. These people who'd seen it working and going, the only way we're going to accept this is at home Mm. is if we do this in our multilateral.
2: Yeah.
0: So, yeah, we did it with the Americans in Afghanistan, but now we've got to do it in a NATO context. Mm. And then, you know, it'll have to be something that they'll have to do in an EU context and keep breaking it down smaller and smaller until it gets normalised. So what you see here is the pace of what has worked before. If it worked, no one really wants to change it. And no hierarchy is going to change particularly fast Mm. because changing all the pieces and knowing what changing the pieces means is so complex. Mm -hmm. You can't just change one bit in a hierarchy or it becomes a weak spot. You have to change every bit ever so slightly and they need to be sure what those changes mean and how they work or they simply won't trust it.
2: Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I was thinking, yeah, you do a little experiment, you know, and then you go, oh, it works in a, because there's a there's something that um, I was thinking about. There's a nice continuum of, uh, like when you can when you um, blame or failure, and it's that it's you know basically that not all not all uh, contexts are the same. Some contexts. You can, like training's a really good example. It's a nice, you, know, you get a sandpit environment, give it a go. Mm. Then, you know, a little bit more. There might be something real, but it's not so high stakes. And then, mm. you know, up you go to, for God's sake, don't press that red button because the world will end. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah, I was thinking maybe that's, is that you take a small bite and you go, right. this is a time we can mm. try. So, the thing I've been
0: hopefully. talking about with Ben Pronk, Mm-hmm from you know, the Unforgiving Sixty, who's an ex-SAS officer, yeah. was I think in training you should have two things you train for and delineate them separately. This part of the training is to show me you have learnt everything we've learnt historically as an organisation. And I'm going to test you on that first to make sure you've learnt what we've taught you in the way it's normally used. Mm-hmm. Now let's train you again on trying something different. Yes, This will not be towards your permanent m- you know, marks for this course, this will be to see you can do it properly. Now try something creative. Mm. With all of us here to debrief together in a safe-to-fail environment, we've taught you the way that's worked for 100 years. But you may have some cool idea. And you go, I would never try it when people's lives are on the line. Yes. But let's try the batshit crazy idea yeah. in training. Now there's no room for that mm. at the moment in most training in most organizations. And I would love to see that two-geared training. There is training for what we do in the way we've historically done it to prove you're competent as the organization was yesterday. Yep. Now, let's apply that with, let's see what happened with a group of capable people in a room. We do the crazy version. Try the mad idea. Yep. Either we all go, hmm, there's something in that, and we roll it into a development team or unit to work on, or we go, gee, that failed monumentally, and we know why, and someone tries that every year, and we're glad you try it here in training so it doesn't cost lives if you ever do it out in the world.
2: Yes. Yeah. And that, yeah, I think taking that positive is, well, we learned fast. Yeah. And
0: that's the thing <laughs> why you need to be again. learning both ways. Yeah. You learn to confirm that you've learned. Yeah. And you try things to confirm that they're worth investing more time in, or it just was a cool idea that would kill people. Yeah. Go do that,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. or not, yeah, yeah. Let's try something different. So that we'll build on it. Mm. That bit didn't work. How about this bit? Or here's a new thing. Maybe so, you know that's another. Mm. So start to build on the ideas, even if some of them are just like yes.
0: So the wonderful going. idea too from high reliability organisations, and the best mm. example is aircraft carriers. You know where the 19 year old on the catapult crew looks at the catapult one day and it doesn't look right, and signals mm. do not launch. So a 19 year old, than, you know. Two years in the Navy's already saying do not launch on a fast jet off a carrier. Hmm. It's kind of a huge thing to take on board. Now it turns out the catapult was not in the absolute happy range, but neither was in a bad range. But you know, the next day the captain of the ship comes down to say to that nineteen year old, Well done. Yes. Always go with your training and your experience. Yep. That was the weirdest version you'd seen. Well, spotted for saying, hang on, that doesn't look like what it's looked like every other time. Exactly. People with more experience in the end checked and went, no, it probably would have been all right. But we want you to be right. So, the other side of that, you know, with HROs, it's fantastic, is when problems are found, is the person who identifies the problem is at the level of the problem, becomes part of the team to solve it, and then rebriefs everyone. Yes. So, once again, it's not that you've taken them out of the hierarchy permanently. But you make sure the person who is at the operational end of whatever can go wrong is at the operational end of fixing it and briefing it.
1: That sounds common sense, doesn't it? It it does. When you look at it even (laughs) differently, you've you've done
0: complex problem solving (laughs) with me. So
1: you've been normalized to actually good sense, not common sense. Let me put my retail worker hat on, which I do as a part time thing. Yeah. I identify problems at a Ooh. store level that no one who makes the kinds of decisions in head office in Brisbane would be able to identify not because they don't see. work in a store. Yep. Exactly. So how they don't best understand the operations. That nope. So it would just make sense that Whoever is able to identify those problems assists in making mm. them better. But, but yeah. do you have a form you
0: can fill in?
2: Or do you, yeah, can you tell somebody? And about will these they problems?
0: go and say, Tim, would you like to do a two week solid block? It has with to go to the, develop- the
1: management chain, And at yeah. which point it becomes not my idea, it becomes my manager.
0: If it's a good idea, if yeah, it's exactly. a good idea. But again, this is Gosh. the difference with high reliability yeah. organisations. They would say, Tim, mm. come and work with the development team for two weeks yeah. on full pay and see if there's a way we can improve that mm. in every store. Yeah, well. And that kind of model of you could say, oh, God, I'm going to be all you know, kind of scared of working with big, scary grown-ups. If you couldn't deal, in your case, you'd be fine. Mm. Mm. But if someone couldn't deal, maybe there's a way of getting out of it. But at yeah. least they would be included in what they thought up. Because yeah. how can we expect that someone can effectively articulate a new idea to every other person in a way they'll understand? That's another thing of learning environments. Mm. <laughs> Just look at the educational difference normally between a very senior boss a mid-level to junior boss Mm. and the lowest person in the team. Mm. One person might be high school, one person might be basic degree, one person might be on their second master's. Mm. One person's got one year in the job, one person's got 10 years in the job, one person's got 25 years in the job. What common language do we have Mm. other than the language of the hierarchy for saying this needs to be done now? And that is not good learning language.
2: Yeah, and interestingly enough, as you when you were saying the different levels of education and tenure in the organisation are actually sources of like power, informal yeah. power. So, yeah, you right know, if, horribly if like, so. So you know, knowledge is power. So yep. if you have you know qualifications up the butt, then you will be expected to be that. You know, I'm the intellect. You know, I'm, mm. I've got this expert knowledge, which is a form of power. And when you were saying Tim, about the um. Telling, like being on the floor and seeing problems and then going it up the chain. A perfect example of this where it went wrong was the um, Challenger disaster in NASA. Oh, with right. the tiles. Yeah, going with wrong. the tiles. That is such a perfect example. So the engineer actually spotted the problem right. way, way long before. I think on the, did it burn up on re entry?
0: Yeah, well, yeah. literally a tile came off the yeah. heat, got through and boom.
2: Boom. And so oh, no,
0: it was on the way up, wasn't it? Way up. Yeah, because we had a huge fuel load. Yeah, there, it was on the way up. Yeah. Anyway,
2: yeah. I might have. Gone. Anyway, but an engineer spotted the problem, told the boss or the And the, it got disappeared. Yeah, it got disappeared. Um and they but what's interesting is the engineer was in the big meeting that okay, he could have sat there and said there's a problem but You've been
0: pressurised into
2: not. Exactly. And like all the bosses were in this large meeting. So, of course, who are you, you know, who am I to say, I've told my boss, it's been squashed, but, you know, okay, we're following procedure now. I'm not going to say a word because I've been put back in my My box box by my boss. boss. I'm not going to stand up in front of like the entire, you know, CEOs of the organisation right. go, woohoo! Here is a problem, yep. and embarrass my boss and all the way up the chain. Yeah. So that basically squashed it's
1: like middle management
0: crush so yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they're in that awkward and, position where they have some power.
2: Yeah. But exactly. also they have,
0: they have something to lose.
2: Yes. Very and not much
0: to gain. Yeah.
2: And the poor, it's a
0: dangerous midpoint. Yeah.
2: And the poor bunny in the seat was yeah. so junior, like they're going, well, what? And you know, technically, nobody was saying don't do it but mm. the all the weight of the expectations and social norms and he self he self monitored and went no nah, i'm not standing up and saying it yep. so that's that is such a classic example mm. of when you know the the, the cognitive the, the, the social cognitive expected expectations of yourself as a junior in the massive team of you know mm. senior folks went no nope, i'm not putting my hand up and perhaps if the said it then they would have stopped it and yeah very think, different outcome.
1: Uh, th- this is this might be too much of a tangent and slightly too off topic can these learnings be applied to the unconscionable culture of sexual harassment in parliament oh. house
2: oh yeah well yeah. yes without a doubt
1: absolutely <laughs>
2: they could be applied everywhere absolutely everywhere absolutely. yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. in essence it's i mean partly it's that you know what you walk by the standard that you walk by is the standard you ex- accept
1: right mm. not that we want to put the responsibility by the way on no, all of the staffers who are not saying anything. No, 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 no. but yeah. it, it is that. But it's that same thing. If, Absolutely. If the system has done nothing for so long.
2: Yeah.
0: When you enter the system, you see it does nothing. When yeah. you have authority, you do nothing.
2: Yeah, and it's easier to keep on doing the status quo than yeah, it is to change. Because
0: changing it means going against what's above you Yeah. when you've been privileged enough to be promoted, yep. which means you abided, you fit, yes. and suddenly you're not abiding and you're not fitting. Whoa. And there's yeah. people
1: below you going, Mm, boss just did something dumb. Yeah. Well, that that seems to e- like that seems to echo through the walls of Parliament House. And yeah, yeah. I it, wish it, they'd stop saying this is a Parliament issue. I wish mm. they'd start saying I mean, obviously this is a political party issue. <laughs> well, I mean, you could say that it's a larger society well, issue. Well, it is, but, but yeah. we are
0: looking in a particular context mm. of people who end up with power looking the other way. Right. Mm. And that is not a Parliament issue. It's a party issue because the party takes people... And you work so many steps to get anywhere near that right. big building in Canberra. It's yeah. the career politician problem,
2: yeah. and yeah. I'd even dare I say it, lob the little um, special forces Brereton report or the okay. misbehaviour yeah. in in special forces. Very yep. similar um, dynamics, different contexts, yep. different, yeah. but very similar in that you know the poor behaviour of that some you know level in the team. Mm-mm.
0: Gets normalized to everyone normalized,
2: below everybody below they use yeah. all the um you know d- d- dynamics at their disposal yeah, like yeah. It, there's that management level to you know control the team yeah and it's standardized and it's just the way it is and everybody goes okay yeah that's what yeah. we do all right
0: because whoever the gatekeeper is determines what happens below them So until the gatekeeper wants to gatekeep differently. Mm -hmm. You can apply as much pressure towards gatekeepers as you want. And what no one wants to talk about, honestly, in the media discussion about (laughs) the Veriton Report or sexual violence Mm. is look below the gatekeeper at all the people who want to be the gatekeeper.
2: Very good. Interesting. Yeah.
0: And you fundamentally will not change the gatekeeper if the people below the gatekeeper go, well, if he does something dopey or she does something dopey, I'll just step in. Yeah. And I'm not changing because yeah. I know how the system works. Yes. And I've been promoted
1: and rewarded for, for being exactly what I am, you know? which is exactly what the gatekeeper so made me. You're just biding time until you, you miss yes. this and then someone else acts <laughs> yes. As you. Yes, and this is why <laughs> yeah. I
0: don't yeah. think we have a real debate about either of these issues. Ooh. Because you can have a gatekeeper fall on their sword. Yeah. Big deal. Yeah if what has been normalised for 20 years of other people's careers is I will one day be the gatekeeper because I will behave as the gatekeeper.
2: Yes. Whoa. Yeah, I will be promoted. This is what happens if you step out, if you yep. blow a whistle. Oh, this is the other thing happens. And yeah. you know, hang on a minute, here I am maybe with my mm. family, with my kids. I've got people relying on me. Yep. How you much say? risk can I take? Yeah, how well, much the risk? And, you know, I know that this is, you know, special forces, highly sought after, you know. It's, well, like it's,
0: working in Parliament House. Yeah, yeah exactly. Same
2: high, high prestige within the, you know, yeah. within the broader community. Would I risk that for, you know, possibly mm. speaking out? Is that out a problem
1: then with not being explicit in how you traverse the hierarchy? Well, it's one of those
0: things that there are hierarchies who promote via merit and it's right. not your boss who promotes you. You okay. put in paperwork saying, I think I'm ready for the next level. Mm-hmm. You get supporting documentation and the people who assess you have nothing to do with you. Right. You get assessed by mm. someone you've probably met once, but it's certainly not your current boss. Mm-hmm. Your, your current boss cannot promote you. Right. And if in meritocratic institutions like that, gatekeeping can still wreck them. Mm. Gatekeeping is profoundly powerful Okay. Mm. And and, then- and destructive when it goes off the rails.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yes, because it's a very – and again, this is the issue of power, Mm. gatekeeping by its nature. They hold the power, Mm. whatever that power may be in that particular time.
0: And again, this would be an interesting question for the Mm. the big army context you worked in. Mm. Better teams worked probably because someone had set a trend in the unit Mm. for relative autonomy, treating people like humans, but abiding by hierarchy.
2: Yeah, I think that, yes.
0: That set works really well for people who are very comfortable at the level they're at Mm -hmm. and very comfortable to let other people be at the level they should rise to. Mm -hmm. This is very good for confident, comfortable people. Mm -hmm. They're confident in their own skin. They're comfortable with doing their job well, but they don't feel any need that they should be the highest critter in the fiefdom or they should slow anyone else down.
2: That's a really interesting um, observation because there's some really cool research that, was looking at the effect of power, so power in teams. It's not just the military, mm-hmm. but more broadly. So you've got two different ways of looking at power in teams. You've got the actual general overall level. So say you can have a a, a team of say all senior ex- executives. So there's no variation; they're all senior, so they're all the same, high or low. But and then you can have a lot of variation, even mm-hmm. if they're sort of some are higher, some are low. So you've got sort of the Average level of it and then the degree of variation in the team. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So those two things interact, talking about being comfortable with it. Yeah. So what you find is that if people are essentially, there's some variation, then there's actually less conflict in teams. If people are more similar, there's more conflict, oh, because speaking. people are
1: trying to establish the yes. thing without already having the formal hierarchy. Exactly. Yeah. Right.
2: So there was a really cool bit of uh, a cool piece of research that's just been released because one of my friends was doing it was exactly looking at that that if there's more different ty- kinds of power, so you know I have power from you know I have my source of power might be you know I don't know you know I'm an expert marketing. For example, and then there's another person who, interestingly or not, but not a different sort of knowledge. But they might be the one who owns the money or has the ability to say yes. That's a better team than Mm, two two people people the same. Two people of the same, or like two, with say, you know, I'm 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 a marketing person, and Mm. there's a uh, logistics person.
0: Right. even when we look more just practically, when we sit and talk about this stuff. You've got the background of doing it quantitatively. I've got the experience of training and just trying things out. Yep. And both of us can happily listen and learn from the other person because we know we couldn't do what they do.
2: Yeah, exactly. We
0: know what we do is (laughs) incredibly complimentary, (laughs) but we couldn't do what each other do. We'd more than happily help each other do things. Yep. But we couldn't do what each other do, and that's a great position to be yeah. in.
2: And actually, surprise, surprise, the whole if we you know, if we we work together, yeah. um, the whole team will be better because exactly we recognise your strengths and your compliments. Yep. Well, complimentary.
1: I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna just apply this to my I'm gonna yeah. rae it to my own life. David and I, I yeah. David holds the power of being the knowledgeable <laughs> Find the guests, find the you know yep. expert kind of theorizer, and yep. I am the editor and the yep. production kind exactly. of manager and those are two different yeah, but levels the of power. The wonderful thing that, too is <laughs> you also bring young curiosity to the table. Yeah. Sure. I mean, but, but, but there is a power differentiation in terms mm. of yes. uh, that, that, but there's also mm. then a power, uh, or I would, well, in some sense, I then hold all the power in terms of the yeah, production of the exactly. podcast. Mm. So, uh, yeah. 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 So, mm.
2: so, you know, difference you,
1: is good. Yeah. And you we work well together. Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. Difference
0: mm. is good. And that's what people don't understand. Yeah. Everyone can be in the same thing, a suit and tie, yeah. or everyone can be in a green uniform. Yeah. But the difference in the team mm-hmm. is actually what makes the team work well. Because yep. they go, well, I see that person as a person who's different to me, yeah. but valuable to me. Yes. So, there'd be an interesting thing. Here in you know in mm. Army where emotion is not a normal part of the day.
2: Oh, but it always
0: is. Oh, yeah, but that's my point. It always <laughs> is because a team who is doing well yeah. also has a good emotional state as a group.
2: Absolutely, even if that's not. And they
0: may not ever be able to explain yes. how the dark humor and the weirdness works, yeah. but they've got dark humor and weirdness, yeah. and everyone, whether they entirely understand it or not, likes being a part of it. Oh, mm. absolutely.
2: Yeah. I, I totally agree. It's Yeah, it is. It's, again, one of those classic... Um, it's not necessarily visible, or no, people. No, but it's there. Oh, and if it's there and goes wrong, or if it's yep. like if someone organized. takes
0: real hierarchy that takes away autonomy, oh. takes away freedom, <laughs> says you're all just your rank and the colour of your it. tie or uniform. Just. Watch the implosion.
2: Exactly. Watch
0: the people trying to get out and yep. move to different places. Yep.
2: Just watch the disengagement. Push.
0: Yeah. All you whoosh. need is one person to wreck it. Yep. A classic example when my dad. Retired. Mm. Everyone who worked for him had changed company in a year of him retiring because no one wanted to be in the team that existed once he had left as manager. Mm
2: -hmm. There's actually building on that. There's a really again a classic bit of research that I do trot out and I trot it out regularly within defence was saying um, there's a a a nice matrix between competency and Likeability, agreeableness. Mm. So, what when you ask people, what, what, who do you want to work with? It's like, oh, I want to work with you know the technically brilliant person, and eh, don't have to be you know a nice person to work with. But I just want technical brilliance. It's like, great. Then when you actually look at
0: who works with who, really, yeah,
2: yeah and how well the team performs, guess what? Eh, you know the 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 jerk star. Tends to get sidelined.
0: as fast as possible,
2: and then the va- you know the reasonably competent person yep. who is just really nice.
0: You, you want know. equal levels of competence and agreeability, yeah. If not slightly more agreeability than Ex- competence, absolutely. Because you yeah.
2: squeeze every little bit of competency out a nice. person. Because someone in a
0: nice environment wants to perform exactly because they like the fact they're valued and yep. they're included. Yep. Yeah.
2: Yep. And exactly And yeah. And so it grows the difference between what people say, well, some people, what they said they want and then actually what works. And another cool bit of um, quantification, I went, oh, yes, was um, <laughs> was to actually, I was listening to another podcast about psychopaths at work. Or, you know,
0: As I, one does while sitting at one's desk. It's,
2: it's, I was in the bus, I have to say, I was in the bus. So they'd done these very clever people had actually worked out the cost of, so if you had, they were calling them ourselves. <laughs> that, that was a technical term. That's a technical term. Um, so the cost of having it is like psycho in the, in in the to replace a psycho with even an average person improved
0: like, productivity. Oh, no. like
2: fivefold, yeah. five times. Whoa. massively. Yeah. Interestingly enough, to just replace a, a a normal average person with a star only increased it by about. What?
0: Again, this is the so, ultimate argument for yeah. zapping CEOs' bonuses and reducing their paycheck. Yeah. Is what we know that beyond a certain level of competence, yeah. there is, you know, it's like stereo. Beyond a certain point, no one can hear it's better. Exactly. And CEOs yes. are much the same. Beyond a certain point, you are getting nothing extra for <laughs> the extra That's million so dollars. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Man. Yeah. yeah. That's so, a great so, little line.
2: Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. the drag on the team, mm. like poor team performance because some yeah. jerk. Um, is so much more yeah. because, it's, like as you've alluded to before, emotions are contagious. Yeah. So if you see, so you know, you might not have been the subject of some, you know, painful interaction, but if you've seen two colleagues sitting there and they've just bagged somebody else, and you're going, oh, yeah,
0: not part of this. Exactly I'm that. Out of here. Yeah. I'm yeah. just
2: watch me disengage and meet meep. meep you know,
1: Roadrunner. Exactly. Interesting. Whoop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so in some ways, you know, having a, a, a workmate who is being negative mm. and then complaining about that workmate actually makes it worse.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, in it's some because sense, it's actually doubles the nega- it down. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, exactly. And then, yeah so you're wow. listening to it. You've watched it. You're listening to it. You're, to it, and you're going,
1: yep. oh. And so then you're spreading that to yep, the next yep, person. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, oh, so oh, man, it is, is you almost like, as bad. Yeah. yeah
2: well, it's a, it's it, emotions are contagious. T- it yeah. is a contagion. And you can actually track it and look at it and measure it and go, yeah. wow. you know, Just like a yawn. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Very similar. And um, it's and the emotional this, yawn. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of this is, as I said, it's almost. If you were asked how much impact does it have, you go, "Oh, you know, I, a bit. Yeah. a beer. I a don't really, yeah. exactly. I don't really like it, but yeah, it's so oh no. A little but when beard. you actually measure it, it's like it's a big whoa. Yeah, it's, it's more than you think. And I mean, often that becomes, and um, you know, it's invisible to mm. you know senior managers. Or, they just go meet meet. Yeah, exactly. They go, oh well, turnover's normal. And go, yep. Yeah, but not, not know, like not that. Not quite like that. Mm. So yeah,
0: that to me feels like a, a pretty good place to start wrapping up mm. for today. Oh, cool. Unless we you know we <laughs> want to record another hour of fun stuff, oh, but I, I my suggestion would be. So when you have submitted your PhD and you're mm. you're not sort of editing and writing anymore <laughs> but you can just reflect on what you want to do with it would you like to come back I and talk would about that side?
2: Love to come back and my pla- yes, yes, I would love to.
0: Okay, Excellent. so Definitely. what we will say is we could go further today, but then it's just us having fun. Yeah. <laughs> but let's get Christina back when she's got less pressure on her and we can talk more about hypothetically what projects she would like to apply this to because we, we've gone down this path so many times, they have nearly what this could be done with this mm. without wanting to just, you know, Unleash the
2: worms. (laughs) I would love
0: to. So next time we'll unleash the
1: worms.
2: (laughs) Yes. 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 And my submission date is end of August. Oh, perfect. So sometime next year. In in (laughs) Um, spring. Yes, in spring.
1: (laughs) (laughs) New life. Well, thank you very much, Christina Sodart, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Enjoyed it immensely. Anytime.
1: <laughs> this is good seeing you were nervous. Yeah. Ah, you've done and that I'm well. like, why were
0: you nervous? You got no reason ah. to be nervous. Now, listeners, Christina was really nervous, I think. <laughs> and the great thing I is, am. she doesn't sound nervous anymore. No. So, proof if you're thinking that you'd like to come on and be a guest, look, we're
2: not scary. No. You're a nice little <laughs> pussy cats. You are. You're very sweet.
1: So, oh. on that note, have a perfect day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. And thank you, audience.
2: Hello, audience. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favorite episodes or leave us a review. If you really love us, we'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights or send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out.